All right, so if you've been with us here during Lent, we've been preaching on these ten parables that only appear really in the book of Luke after Jesus resolutely sets his face toward Jerusalem to the cross. These ten unique parables in Luke are found. So we have ten parables, four holy days, one Lord Jesus. So this morning, Pastor Greg and I will continue with two more of the parables. Before we do, let's pray together. Lord God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see wondrous things in your word. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray these things. Amen. So maybe most of you know, maybe some of you don't know, but the Klein family has already had two weddings during COVID. My two oldest children have been married. My daughter Lena was the first to go in the month of July, and then my son Benjamin went in the month of November. The first wedding, we had 43, I think 44 guests. Second wedding, about 63 guests, all outdoors. Um, I remember uh, the most difficult negotiation of this whole thing was figuring out who would sit at the table with us? Who would be in person at the wedding? Who could witness this thing and actually celebrate with the client family around the table? There were limited seats. Now, you know, if it was up to my daughter, Lena. She was the one to go first. And long before COVID, she was planning her wedding. And frankly, we'd have probably gone bankrupt with her guest list. Um, she had planned to have her whole track team, her whole gymnastics team, every friend on the face of the earth to spend the wedding. It was going to be like the royal wedding. And then in March, COVID hit. And of course, he said, well, this will be over in a couple months. Lena will be fine. And then when it got down to 50 guests and 50 guests only, wow. It became difficult to figure out who would actually sit at the table. Now, if you think about it, no matter how large your wedding is, there's always limited seats, right? There's always limited money. There's only so many seats for people to come and sit at the table with the family and celebrate this really special day. And it's always a negotiation to figure out which friends will be there and which friends won't, which relatives will be there, which relatives won't. It's a difficult negotiation to go round and round and try to figure out this great banquet that's going to celebrate this coming together in marriage. By the way, I have my third wedding on May 14th in a little more than two months. That'll be, I think, 100 guests. So it'll be a little more, a few more guests we can put at the table. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Jewish people actually look forward to the end of time, and they believe there was going to be a great banquet that would happen at, at the end of time in the kingdom of God. They thought of that banquet a lot like a family planning a wedding. They thought of people in the wedding, in the, at the banquet, as being insiders, people that would sit at the table, and outsiders, lots of people that wouldn't sit at the table. They thought of themselves as the insiders because they followed the law. They lived this good Jewish life, the life that pleased God. So they were the insiders invited to the banquet, and everybody else was cut out. Now, frankly, I don't know how they got this vision or this conclusion because Isaiah 26 is the one who paints the picture of this banquet. Check this out. In Jerusalem... The Lord of Heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom and the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears, will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people, all people, will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. Now it's pretty clear in these verses that this banquet is not limited seating. This banquet's for everyone. For the Jews, 
for the Gentiles, for the sinners, for the not-so-sinners, anybody gets to come sit at the table. So somehow this idea of a banquet for all peoples really offended the Jews. They felt like, man, this is not right. We should be the ones on the inside at the table and the rest of these people should be shut out. So they interpreted this passage to be a banquet of judgment against all the Gentiles and sinners in the world. In fact, if you read the scrolls from Qumran, they specifically spell out the exclusiveness of this banquet. Getting it specific to say, no deaf people, no blind people, no lame people, no mute people, no one with any physical defense or visible skin blemishes would be allowed to eat at the table of the king. So Jesus finds himself at a dinner in this passage this morning, Luke 14. He's at a dinner at a Pharisee's house. He's hanging out at the Pharisee's house. And the people are angling for the best seats. They're talking about who should be at the banquet and who should sit at this table and who should be at this dinner with the Pharisees and with the Jews and the, all the insiders. And Jesus says something about the reward of the resurrection, which obviously brings to mind this banquet for somebody in the room, and this person yells this out. What a blessing it will be to attend the banquet in the kingdom of God. In response, Jesus launches into a parable about the great banquet. Now, the kids did a great job telling the story, but look what he starts, verse 16. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. This man invites his friends, his neighbors, the people on the inside, people he would have known, people that were in his social class, people that were his equals, those of his inside circle, kind of like planning a family wedding. And he says, come on to the banquet. But these insiders, they have lots of excuses. More important stuff to do. Now these excuses are actually super rude. Because when you plan a banquet in the ancient Near East, you would actually invite people first, get their yes, then you'd buy all the food, prepare the meal, and then you'd yell to them, come, it's ready now. So it's kind of like if you had a dinner party at your house, everybody's in the, in the living room having cocktails and hors d'oeuvres, and the cook is ready, the food's ready, hey, come sit to the table, and everyone says, I can't do it, we're, we're out of here. We've got something else better to do. Super rude. Jesus' point here in this parable, these insiders, these Jews, are trying to stop this banquet from happening. They don't want to sit at the table with all these outsiders. They only want to sit at a table with insiders. Now this affront to the invite makes the host angry, but instead of turning his anger on the insiders, he goes out to fill the seats with others. Check this out. Go out quickly, he says to his servant, into the streets and alleys of town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. See, Jesus is offering a different interpretation of Isaiah's vision of the final banquet. Instead of just the insiders being there, he says that all the seats will be filled. There's unlimited seats. and They'll be full of people that everyone's written off. All the people that are kind of the losers, the ones that the insiders decided are the outsiders. And Jesus is going to sit with them at this table. Now, it's interesting to me because we do the Lord's Supper around a table like this. And often in church, the Lord's Supper includes some super silver platters and guys in suits. And all of us dress up because we want to really honor the Lord's Supper. This, this is good. But I wonder if it kind of does a disservice to the Lord's Supper. Like, I wonder if the picture of this table is not supposed to be silver plates and golden bowls and everyone in suits, but... Maybe this table's for the guys who are drunk and naked like Noah was. 
or murderers like Moses, or adulterers like David, or women who have ill reputations like Mary Magdalene, or deniers like Peter, or persecutors like Paul. Maybe we should use dumpy old dishes and dress in our worst clothes because it really more accurately reflects who we really are coming to the table of the Lord, to the banquet of the king. We don't really belong at the table, none of us. But we get to come because Jesus invites us. And now when the host realizes that the seats are still not full, he sends a servant out again. Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. So even though these Jews were trying to reject Jesus, reject his mission, only focusing themselves, Jesus wouldn't let that happen. He was going to create this banquet that was going to be for all people. Fulfill the vision of Isaiah. This unlimited table where anyone could sit, no matter what they had done. Now, does this have any bearing for our lives? Well, first of all, you've got to ask yourself, have you accepted Jesus' invitation to this table? Have you said yes? Or are you, like the people in the parable, making excuses? about the reasons why you can't come. Or why you come later, but not now. Why you have other things to do. Because if you haven't accepted Jesus' invitation to the table, if you're not sitting at the table of the Lord, you're not going to get to receive his grace and his healing and his salvation that he offers at this table. Secondly, are we in church really that much different than the Jewish people? I mean, we know who's the insiders here, right? We know who's in. We know who's out. The question we have to ask ourselves, are we ready for all the people that God might send in the doors of this place? Are we ready to sit at the table with them? Are we ready to invite them to our houses, to hang out with them, to love them, to come alongside them in the name of Jesus? Because this table's got unlimited seats. And Jesus continues to invite the lame, the blind, the poor, the naked, the crippled, the stumbling, the messed up to sit at this table. And finally, are you ready to invite someone who doesn't know about this table to come and actually sit here with you? You know, we're doing Alpha right now. It's awesome. We have about 14 people that don't know Jesus like we do in the garden room every, every Tuesday night exploring their Christian faith. It's awesome. But here's my vision, that this room would one day be filled with people who don't know Jesus. Sitting here watching the Alpha videos. And how's that going to happen? Well, who is the one person that God has put in front of you that you're supposed to be praying for and possibly bring back here to join you at the table of the Lord? Who's the one person? Who's the one name that comes to mind who you could bring here to Alpha to sit here and understand the great banquet the king is offering to everyone who's out there in the world. Pastor Greg, tell us about those lost people. All right. Well, it's striking to me how many of Jesus' stories uh, revolve around or conclude at a table like this. Um, Thinking about some of these parables of Jesus really brought up the longing inside me after a year of not having anybody over to our house, and rarely, if ever, even sitting around a restaurant table with um, close friends and dear people. Um, the vision of this 
and knowing that it's on God's heart to have us close together, building community and enjoying the delight of his table. Um, I, I think it's good and healthy to feel that and have that deep longing these days because uh, we indeed have been missing out. Um, perhaps you noticed Dr. Seuss had a pretty rough week in the news. Uh, I need to do a little more thinking about this, but I, I want to say, like, for me personally as a little kid, I owe a great debt to Dr. Seuss because of his inventive and creative use of language and I think some of the beautiful ideas that come out in his childish books reflect some of the deep truths that we're trying to get at through Jesus' stories. Um, I mean, one of the great stories of Dr. Seuss, in my opinion, is the story of the Sneetches. There's this, these weird little creatures, and some of them have a star on their belly, and other ones just have a plain belly. And over the course of this story, they just find all kinds of reasons why to exclude and play this inside-outside game based on if you have a star on your belly or not. And I mean, I can remember so many of those drawings as a kid, and what Dr. Seuss was really introducing is this godly idea that it doesn't matter what country you were born in, what kind of language you speak in, uh, what color your skin is, where you've been, what job you're at, like you're a human being made in God's image. Like this is the table for all of God's children, whether you have a star on your belly or not. So anyway, for my part, those books of Dr. Seuss that like get those ideas deep into like three and four-year-olds' minds, like please, that's good and gospely stuff. Jesus tells some more stories in Luke chapter 15. There's kind of a situation. Here's the setup. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were murmuring, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus told them this parable. Actually, he tells them three parables in succession. So for Luke chapter 15, some of Jesus' most famous parables are, right, are going to follow. But you need to imagine this situation. There's an outdoor courtyard, and there's a large fire in the middle. And the good spots at this outdoor courtyard, this gathering, the good spots are close to the fire for two reasons. Probably the fire is going to be used for the cooking, so you're closest to the food. And then secondly, as the evening chill descends in from the desert, like you're closer to the fire, so you actually keep warm and comfy. There are two groups at this Luke 15 party who are present. One are the insiders, the religious folks like me, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who have every right and privilege to be rubbing shoulders with this young rabbi Jesus. And then there's a second group. They are the outsiders, the tax collectors and the notorious sinners. And they would be uh, at the outside of the courtyard, maybe 20 steps removed, kind of like like when people used to go to golf courses and watch golf, like in the back, like looking over people's shoulders, trying to listen in and hear what this young rabbi was saying. Jesus himself is likely close to the fire. Lest we judge, from our modern point of view, this inside-outside game, every good Jewish person knew the Jerusalem temple was laid out exactly this way. And if the temple was laid out that way, it must mean that God wants reality to be structured this way. So at the Jerusalem temple, there was a huge outside court of the Gentiles. So you love God, you want to follow the God of the Hebrew scriptures, awesome, you can come, but you have to stay in the outside Gentile court. 
One step closer was the court for the women. Behind another gate was the court for all Israel, except by all Israel it meant you had to be a guy. So Israel, Jewish men, were allowed into that closer court. And then if you were a special kind of man, a priest, you got to go in even a little bit closer to the Holy of Holies. And if you were the high priest, the most special of all priests, you one day a year got to go into that most holy place. Can you feel the kind of caste system and the hierarchy of closeness to God? And that was part and parcel of reality for the folks 2,000 years ago that Jesus was telling his story to. So of course, if Jesus himself, this rabbi who is speaking on God's behalf, would not the men and the religious men be closest, and then maybe the women out here, and then the outsiders and Gentiles and notorious sinners out here? Totally made sense to everybody. And then Jesus undermines this entire arrangement. Jesus is so graceful and wise and brilliant. He doesn't have to make points. He simply tells stories. It's significant to me that in Luke 15, verse 2, the religious folks, the pastors, the rabbis, were murmuring and muttering about what was going down. They were saying things like, what kind of rabbi hangs out at a dinner party with those sort of people? Stupid Jesus. Can you believe that he'll even break bread with people like this? Jesus chooses to address everybody and tell stories that hit everybody square in the center at some point. His first story is about a shepherd who has 100 sheep. Um, If you imagine that it's just one shepherd with 100 sheep, it's kind of true, but in village life in Israel, you had to be a really wealthy family to have 100 sheep of your own. An average family would have had five, seven animals maybe. So quite likely we're talking about a village and there's a designated shepherd and he is leading the flock of maybe 10 or 20 families. So he has this communal responsibility. What happens to this shepherd taking care of the village sheep? Well, there's one naughty lamb that goes its own way. And this shepherd, surprisingly, leaves the 99, goes searching for this one, finds it, picks it up, puts it on his shoulders, makes a beeline back into town, and the practice was to check in every night because he didn't want to be losing people's animals, and says, I found the lost one, let's have a party. There is a joy in finding in Jesus' story, and there is a joy in feasting, and then Jesus offers this punchline. You know what? There is more joy in heaven over one outsider who comes to the table than in 99 folks who are already righteous and know they deserve a place at the table. Oh, I mean, think if you, if you put yourself in the outside circle, think if you're craning your neck to hear this young rabbi and he tells a story about how valuable you are as one out of 100, as the lost wandering lamb. Jesus' second story moves from one in 100 to one in 10. There's a woman, she doesn't get out much probably in village life 2,000 years ago as a woman in Samaria, and she loses one of 10 coins that she has. Might not seem like a big deal to us if you lost a quarter, you might not even bother looking for it. However, in this woman's life, probably 10 coins was a big deal. Think like if you lost the password to your bank account and couldn't access your funds, you'd be like, 
Where did I write that down? By the way, there's a guy in Great Britain who recently lost his password to his $30 million of Bitcoin. And he offered the police to go one-tenth of that sum of money to dig through a landfill to find his lost scrap of paper. That, that's an amazing modern version of the story. <laughs> so write your passwords down, people. So this woman loses like one-tenth of her like, savings, basically. And Jesus says... Again, she knows it somewhere in her house. She sweeps and looks. She sweeps and looks. She sweeps and looks. She finds it, and her reaction is to invite everybody over and probably spend the entire value of that coin to throw a party and have everybody into her little house. There is a joy in finding, especially if you've lost that password, and, oh, it's in the back of my desk. And there is a joy in feasting. By the way, that first story courtyard of the Gentiles, all in the distance. This one, courtyard of the women. Jesus' next story is going to get a little closer to the holy place. Jesus' final story is not about one in 100, not about one in 10. It's about a man, a Jewish man, and he has two sons. It's about one in two. And now for the folks who are gathered around that inner ring of the fire, this is hitting awfully close to home. There is this righteous man and one of his two sons, conveys the message, Dad, all things being equal, it'd be great if you were dead so I could have my half of the fortune. And the father splits up his estate, gives all the money to the son, he leaves town, he has a couple years of just like wild living, sky's the limit, he spends it all, he loses his fortune, he ends up homeless, addicted, uh, on the streets, and finally he wakes up one morning and realizes, my life is so bad right now. Just the lowest servant at home has a better life than I'm living. I'm going to go home. He rehearses his speech. Dad, I'm so sorry. I've screwed everything up. Just, like, let me live in the corner of the basement. When he gets the son, when he gets to the edge of town, Jesus' story says that the father sees him from a long way off, And then the father, this is an extraordinary detail, does what no respectable Jewish man would do 2,000 years ago. He runs. I mean, imagine an aged man wearing thick robes running. The only way to run with robes on, not that I've done this often, is to hike them up and to kind of, I mean, have you ever seen an old man wearing shorts? No offense. No. We have a, a dear brother who wears shorts year-round. Your legs are beautiful, Mac Wiener. But, like, if your legs have not seen the sun in decades, that sort of, like, mayonnaise color uh, that a person's legs can turn when never exposed to the sun, this is the indignity that happens when this father's heart, out of love, hitches up his robes, throwing caution to the wind to welcome this idiot kid of his, because that's what everyone would call him, this idiot son of his, back home. Now the Pharisees and the pastors would be thinking, is, that's not us, he's not comparing us. Uh. But this is not the end of Jesus' story, because the man has two sons. And now Jesus leaves no one with any room to hide any longer because the older son catches wind that even that kind of person gets to come to the father's feast and the older son cannot stand it because he's been so faithful 
and so obedient. He didn't tell his father that he wanted him dead and wanted an early inheritance. He's been the good one all along. And what right does his younger brother have to this kind of privilege and happiness and joy and expense when he's been there all along? In Jesus' story, the father pleads with him an equal indignity to lifting up his robes and running, pleads with his own son, come into the family party. Yes, you've been faithful. And then it ends. An inquiring mind should want to know, does the good person come to the table? Does the faithful, righteous person who's been doing the right thing and living their life the right way come to the table? Can the model citizen humble themselves enough to sit right next door and enjoy the meal and enjoy the company to experience the joy with everyone else that the Father wants there? It is striking that in the parable that Pastor Jeff led us in, it is the guests who are called to say, Yes, 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 I'm coming, I'm running, my heart is there, I'm all in. But in this very next chapter, it's clear that the only way to the table for many of us is not to say yes and to come. It's simply to allow ourselves to be picked up and carried to the table. You might be one or the other. You might be in the inner ring. You might be on the outer ring. You might be the kind of person who has the strength to say yes and the ears to hear the invitation to say yes, God. Or you might be the kind of person that is just out here watching, wondering if possibly this whole Jesus thing could be for you. I mean, when the shepherd finds the sheep, he scoops him up, puts him over his shoulders, and carries him. When the woman finds her coin, the coin doesn't leap into her pocket. She (laughs) reaches down and gathers it back up. When the lost and broken down son makes it back to the father's gate, the father hightails it to the gate, so that his weakened son can lean on him and limp all the way back home. Jesus knows that is often where we are. Broken down, sad, doing things we know we ought not to do. We just need to be scooped up or gathered up. It doesn't matter how you get to the table whether you have the strength in your will and the strength in your legs to get there yourself, or if you can just say, God, here I am. I know you love lost things and lost people. Could you come pick me up? So which is it? Do we come to the table or are we carried? Yes. We both have the freedom to say yes and God chooses us and graces us and will dust us off and find us and pick us up and carry us again and again and again.